for you here. Not because we're something, but because God is something. That God is something. So he has something for you here. So with that, let's jump into our, our message for today. Uh, we've, been, we've been talking these last few weeks about this concept of faith in action. Faith in action. And it's interesting, I had a conversation uh, just this week where someone was bringing up the book of James. And you guys know in the book of James it says, you, know, you tell me about your faith and I'll show you my faith by my works. Right? Are you familiar with that line? And then the Apostle Paul in Ephesians says, we're saved by grace through faith. It is not works so that no one can boast. And I think sometimes we get in this little conundrum where we say, well, which one is it? Is Paul right? Is James right? And of course, the answer is they're both right. And there's this little thing, this little dynamic that we have to figure out in our own minds, in our own hearts, in our own practice of our own faith of, you know, it's one thing to say you believe and to even have some belief, but it's another thing when that belief is strong enough that it compels you to act on it. It's another thing when the belief is strong enough that it compels you to act on it. And I think in the scripture, what we see over and over, and we've been looking at some Old Testament figures like Jonah, like Ruth, and now today we're going to look at Daniel, is that, uh, you know, believing in God is really important. It's incredibly important. And that faith, that belief should move us to action. And according to James, if it doesn't move you to action, then your faith is dead. Your faith is dead. That there's actually an expectation of a result of faith. Not for your salvation, right? Not because you earn your salvation by doing certain things. But because those who are saved would be expected to respond a certain way. And so James is saying, if you don't have these responses, then we wonder about your faith. So as we continue this series, you know, I want to encourage you not to get so much caught up on the possibility of, uh, you know, am I doing enough for God? That's not what I want this to uh, provoke in you. My hope is that it would provoke a different kind of question. Is, would it be possible for God to do more through me? You see the difference? Because God loves you, because he wants to work through you. Is it possible that he wants to do more through me? Not that I have to earn his love, but because of his love, might he want to? And so we're going to look at today the first couple of chapters in Daniel. So if you have your Bible, open it up. Daniel's one of the prophets in the Old Testament. Actually, interestingly, I, I learned this week doing some reading that Daniel's never called a prophet. He's called a seer which is interesting, uh, but he's listed among the prophets in the Old Testament right after Ezekiel. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one underneath your chair and it's on page 881. You can turn there to the book of Daniel. Of course, smartphones, tablets, and whatever you have will be great as well. Uh, but when you look at the life of Daniel, I just want to give you a little bit of background, but when you look at his life, what you see is Daniel exhibiting faith through action over and over and over again. Daniel's one of the few people in the Bible that when you read the book of Daniel, I, it's hard to find his failures. Right? You know our, some of our greatest heroes in the Bible are the biggest failures? Like David, man after God's own heart. But he slept with another man's wife and then murdered him to avoid being caught in adultery. That's pretty bad. 
right? Like, that's pretty bad, right? If, if that happened today, we would be calling for him to go to prison, right? And we would be questioning, did, did David have enough works to justify his claim to faith? <laughs> you know, these are the types of things that happen. You, you look at someone like Abraham, Abraham who lied over and over about who his wife was to protect, his, to, to protect himself, saying his wife was his sister. You know, Abraham who, who uh, you know, many times felt like, looked like he was going to give up. You look at someone like Moses who, oh my goodness, Moses is in the cleft of the rock and he gets to see the presence of God. And yet, when things are hard, he comes to God and he says, God, what are you doing to me? Why did you give me this horrible people? Why, why, why are you doing, why are you abandoning us? It's like, I don't know, he had some kind of emotional uh, distress that resulted in a mental disorder. I mean, it's pretty serious stuff. And then Moses doesn't even enter into the promised land because when he is trying to get water from a rock, he disobeys the Lord and does it his own way instead of God's way, even though the miracle happens. And so we see all these fallen, broken, less than stellar role models in the scripture because that's life, right? That's life. But then every once in a while, you get someone like Daniel. And it's hard to find anything wrong with Daniel. And not because his life was easy, right? So Daniel was born in a time when, uh, when his country had been taken over by Babylon. I don't know if you can, how much you can see this, but, you know, here's... Israel and Judah, over here, the capital, uh, Judah is the southern kingdom. So this is, we're talking after the division of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the Assyrian Empire, previously, which is up here, a couple of weeks ago we looked at Jonah, and he was going over to Nineveh. Nineveh is right about there on the Tigris River. Uh, Jonah was from Israel, the northern kingdom, and he was supposed to go to Assyria. He didn't want to. David was from the, I mean, Daniel was from the southern kingdom, and he was taken to Babylon. He was taken to Babylon because Babylon had defeated the kingdom of Judah. And basically, the Babylonians wanted to take everything of value that they could. So they took all of the, the utensils and, and articles from the temple. They took the storehouses and treasuries, all the contents of those. And they also took the young, promising students the, the, the children who showed competence and capability, and they carted them off to Babylon to serve the king. And so, uh, just to kind of give you an idea, this is that same spot on the map where Babylon is. This is modern-day Iraq, right? And this is Israel over here. So he was taken uh, into that place, and just kind of helps you. I realize the last couple of weeks I haven't shown you where these places are on the modern map to kind of give you an idea of what they look like. Uh, and then all of this is taking place between 605 and 536 B.C. Remember, when you're in B.C., the numbers go backwards because we're counting from zero backwards in time. So uh, 605 B.C. is when Daniel's taken away from Judah. And then in 536 is probably the final vision, or is the final vision. It's probably in 536 that we see in the book of Daniel. And then some people believe that this book was written in about 535 by Daniel himself, recording all the things that had happened, uh, although it could have also been an editor that compiled some of Daniel's writings and others as well. We don't need to worry about that too much. Um, yeah. And so basically where you get here is that you've got this young man 
By the way, that span was about 70 or so years. So Daniel must have been pretty young when he was taken. Pretty young. Probably a young teenager. Okay, so just kind of let yourself get into the moment for a bit. You're growing up. Your nation has been defeated by a foreign power. And then that foreign power is scouring the land for the best and the brightest to take them away from their parents and essentially put them into slavery for the purpose of being counselors, wise men, and leaders in, their na- in this other nation, but without their consent. Now, I want you to think, if you're not 13, think to when you were 13. Or if you're not far from 13, think to when you were 13. And ask yourself, how faithful would I have been to God in that moment? Okay? You can even think about your own personal history. Maybe, maybe at that time you were rebelling against God. Maybe you were on fire for God. Maybe you'd never heard of God at age 13. But this is where, about where Daniel was. So I want to read a little bit of this with you. And then let's see what God might have to say to us about putting our faith into action. So Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, I'm going to stop right there. One thing to notice. When is God faithful? So when God, by his sovereign will, delivers Jehoiakim, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Is God faithful in that moment? Yes. And we're going to see how, because we're going to see how God uses this. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now again, don't be fooled by the, by the way this is written. This is, this is a form of slavery, right? This is not, hey, go out there and, and do a sign-up sheet and see who puts their name down. Right? This is we are going to forcibly remove these young children who show promise and take them, into, take them out of their country, away from their families, and put them into service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To, Mish, to Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Now what's the issue here? So... Daniel grew up in Judah, a place where there was still some remnant of the practice of the law, the law of God. And one of the things that 
It's not spelled out here, but we get the impression that most likely the issue is that he cannot essentially keep kosher in this foreign nation, that the way the food is prepared or the types of food that are being offered do not follow the requirements in the law. Now, again, uh, I'm going to tell a little bit on um, my own kids. When they were growing up, they had some allergies, right? So it was gluten and dairy. Those were the things they couldn't eat. And, uh, but sometimes they would want to eat those things, right? Because everyone else is eating them. Now, they were little, so we give them a pass. But imagine if you have an allergy at 13. You say, oh, I can't eat these things. Now, some of you know what that's like. Some of you know you have children or you were the child who couldn't eat certain things. How likely would it have been for you at age 13 when you're out from under the eye of your parents and you're given all the great things to eat and drink? How likely would you have kept your diet? I would not have kept it at all. Okay? And if it felt like it was some kind of religious thing, a, a God thing, I, I might have kept it even less. <laughs> Like, okay, finally, I'm out from under this system that's been preventing me from having all the foods I like or that I think that I might like if I could ever have them, you know? And even just last night, we were out, and I'm trying to change some of my own eating, and the family had pizza, and I said, I'm not going to have pizza, I'm going to have salad. But there were two or three pieces left when everyone else was done. So who cleaned up? It was not Sonia. I will add, that pizza had pork on it, which is not kosher, and it also had cheese on it, and you did not mix meat and cheese in kosher. So I was just totally off the rails according to what Daniel was allowed to eat, okay? And he was also going to get wine, 13 years old. He said no, right? So it's the very first test of these young men is, will they follow God in their daily practice, in their everyday stuff. And so the first thing I want you to think about is, what is God asking me or calling me to do in just my everyday life, my everyday stuff? And we see that Daniel, it goes beyond this. So for example, as as a man, he would get out on his balcony and he would pray three times a day towards Jerusalem, praying to the Lord, the God of Israel daily practice type stuff. You know, when we get up, are we taking time with the Lord? Are we looking into His Word? Are we asking Him to be with us? Are we doing the things that promote health? Doing the things that, the spiritual health? Because again, it's funny how, you see how um, this, this servant, he says, why should the king see you looking worse than the other young men your age? So Daniel's not doing this for his physical health. He's doing it for his spiritual health. So Daniel then says to the guard, so that's the, kind of the question that I want you to keep in your mind. Daniel said to the guard whom the chief officer had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Now, just one thing to point out here. Don't you love how Daniel's the one who's got the problem, but now he's dragging his friends into it with him? That's a good thing to have friends who want to be faithful to the Lord and they pull you along with them. Give your servants, test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
Then compare our appearance with that of young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this test and tested them for 10 days. Now, what we hear a lot today is like, oh, great, they were having a healthy vegetarian diet. So they would look healthier because vegetables are healthier. And what I want to explain to you or, or convey to you is a different idea. This is written in such a way that this is supposed to be a miracle, okay? And the reason it's a miracle, because I bet a lot of us, if we ate only vegetables for 10 days, we'd probably feel like we look better, right? We'd probably lose some weight, maybe get a little more shine on our skin. I don't know. But it would probably be like, oh, that's a good thing. But in this culture, being thinner does not equate to looking better or being healthier. The most healthy people are the ones who are bigger. Now, also keep in mind that in that culture, obesity is not a really big problem because the struggle is, where do you find enough food, right? So the king always had food, so the king would look healthier, more robust, bigger. So the miracle here is that Daniel's saying, you feed us only vegetables and you feed the other guys the the wine and the meat and all that stuff, and let's see who looks bigger at the end of 10 days. Now, I've done a 10-day vegetable diet, and I didn't get bigger, right? And usually people don't. But, verse 15, at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished, okay? Bigger, plumper, rounder. That's how you need to read that. Than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kind. You see, they, they meet this first little test. Will we honor God in the daily life, in the daily stuff of life? And they pass the test, and then God blesses them. He blesses them. And so he gives them more than they even asked for. They asked to look healthier. Not only do they look healthier, but now their minds are sharp. Their minds are alert. Their minds are able to learn. And again, we're supposed to understand this in a supernatural way because I will tell you this. You can go on a vegetable diet tomorrow if you want, but you will not automatically have dreams and visions. That's not the key. It's a spiritual reality. It's a miraculous moment. Verse 18, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, remember it was three years, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So the first thing is, how do we respond in our day-to-day? And then there's this second element, which is, will these young men apply themselves to learning? Will they apply themselves not just to book smarts, but in this case, to being the best servants they can be to a king who literally stole them from their family and put them into slavery? Now, you might feel like your job (laughs) could feel like that sometimes. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in this circumstance. I don't like my boss. 
Or maybe it's not your job. Maybe it's your circumstances at home. I don't want to be in this, uh, in this situation right now. I don't want to have to have the, the brothers and sisters that I have or the parents that I have or the, the children that I have or the whatever that I have. Maybe it's where you live. I wish I didn't live here. Have you seen my neighbors? Oh, my goodness. And you might think, God, why do you have me here? But the question is, will you be the best employee, parent, sister, brother, son, daughter, neighbor that you can be for this moment while you're here? David stays in service for the rest of his life. He's never freed from this type of bondage. Daniel. Daniel stays in service for the rest of his life. He's never freed from this bondage. But Daniel is a faithful and capable and kind servant to all these kings that he serves. These kings who hate God. These kings who hate Judah and Israel. These kings who tore him from his home and his family and forced him into service. He becomes a faithful servant to them. I imagine that whatever you're facing, you'd rather be facing this than what Daniel faced. It's just something to think about. How am I being faithful? How am I applying myself where I am right now? Now, you may not be a person born into privilege like Daniel was. You may not be from a noble or royal family you may not be particularly handsome. You may not be particularly smart or bright. You may not be able to learn all sorts of languages. And you may not even be able to interpret people's dreams. But God has something for you to do where you are right now. For Daniel, it was learning all this stuff and serving a king. For you, again, maybe it's your home, your neighborhood, your work, your school. Maybe it's your church. Maybe it's, you know, whatever it is. Are you applying yourself? Are you being the best you can be in this moment? Because that matters. And then as we read on, we get this really incredible story. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But basically, this King Nebuchadnezzar, he loves his sorcerers, he loves his wise men, he loves his enchanters, right? Very spiritual kind of guy and he has this dream and he calls all of his wise men together and he says I want you to interpret my dream and they say yes O king we'll interpret your dream and he says there's one catch I'm not going to tell you what the dream was maybe you felt like that in your work <laughs> you need to get this job done I don't know how to do it that's your problem Beth's nodding over here I'm like uh oh <laughs> Maybe you feel like that in life. You got to figure this out, but you don't know how to do it. That's your problem. And so the king basically comes to these men, and he's furious. And he says, if you cannot tell me what my dream is, then I'm going to kill every last one of you, every single one of you, to death. So I don't know why Daniel wasn't in the original group, but someone says, wait, there's this guy named Daniel. And I recall that he's pretty good with dreams. So he goes to ask Daniel. You're looking at me funny. Okay. 
I'm getting funny looks. I'm pretty sure someone went to Daniel. <laughs> Arioch. Huh? Ah, okay, great. So, oh, yes, 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 yes. He was going out to kill all the wise men, right? And he explains to Daniel what happens. And so Daniel says, wait a second, don't kill those guys yet. Let me talk to the king. So Daniel goes before the king, and he says, I think I can help, all right? But he prays to the Lord, and he asks his three friends to pray for him before he goes. So he shows up and the king says this. And here's verse 24 of chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. So Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man among the exiles of Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. And the king asked Daniel, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. I love the way he starts. The simple answer to your question is, No, I cannot. No, I cannot. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you are lying on the bed, are these. And then Daniel proceeds to tell the king what he dreamed. And I'm not going to go through the whole dream. But it's this dream of a statue with different layers and different elements. And it's a dream about the future. And it's a dream about kingdoms. And it's a dream about the king himself. And Daniel tells him the whole dream. And he says in verse uh, 45... The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Now, remember, remember that time that the king asked you to interpret his dream? Do you guys remember that? And you did it, and he was amazed, and then you got wealthy and powerful? Everyone remember that when you did that? No? Oh, oh, that was somebody else, right? That's never happened to me either. It's probably never going to happen to any of us. And so we might think, well, I don't even interpret dreams. What does this have to do with me? I think it's one last, not last, but it's one other little test. One other little test uh, in this beginning of this story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there are more to come. I remember the first test was in my daily living, just my daily personal life, my spiritual health. Am I doing the things that God wants me to be doing, connecting with Him, following Him? The second one was, um, would I apply myself? Would I be faithful in whatever it is God's called me to for this moment? Will I be a faithful person where I am? 
this last one is a little different. And, it's, and it kind of goes something like this. When you're in a hostile environment and you're asked to perform in whatever way it is that you're asked to perform, will you use your faithfulness in that moment to point to God? To just point to God. Daniel showed up at that meeting, I'm guessing, with the dream in mind that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. I think he showed up already knowing what it was and knowing what it meant. Okay? That's what I think. It's kind of how it looks. He's praying overnight. He shows up in the morning. He's like, don't worry, I got this. This is not him uh, so, so much stepping out on faith to hope that the interpretation comes in the moment. He's already got it. Now, Daniel, therefore, could have gone into that meeting with the king and said, look, king, you see all these other diviners and sorcerers and wise men you got here? They're horrible. I'm the one who knows what you need. And he even could have been thinking, I'm going to do this for the, for the glory of God. But then putting it back to himself. I have the answer. I know what your dream was. I can tell you the interpretation. He doesn't do that. He says, you know what? I can't do this, but God can. And he has. And let me tell you what he said. He points it to God. He gives the glory to God immediately and completely. Now, have you ever been in a situation, maybe with a coworker or a friend, family member, neighbor, where they ask you some kind of version of this? And, it, and it's not necessarily you're telling, uh, you know, forecasting the future or doing some miraculous work, but they just say, you know, I noticed that you did this caring thing. Why did you do that? And then in your head, you realize you've got two paths you can go down. I can either say something like, oh, you know, people have been nice to me, so I wanted to be nice to you. Oh, you know, I, I, I just am the kind of person that I really feel like people should be generous with others. Right? And you can have a thousand different permutations of that road. And the other road is, well, to be honest, I serve a God who's generous. And he's been generous with me. And he asked me to be generous with you. Or, you know, when I've struggled, God has sent me people to care and comfort me. So I, I'm going to care for and comfort you. You know, it's very similar, but it's a different message, right? And so the third little test that they come across is not so much can Daniel interpret the dream, right? Because Daniel's not the one who interpreted the dream. That wasn't the test. The test is, will you honor the Lord in a hostile environment? And we are increasingly living in a hostile environment. And when I say hostile environment, I just mean this. If you randomly talk to someone on the street and ask them, hey, do you feel like you've, you're committed to the Lord in every possible way, like sold out for, to Jesus, heart, body, soul? What are the chances they'll say, oh, yes, absolutely. That's me. I mean, when we encounter people like that, it feels like a miracle, right? You know how you're on the train, and all of a sudden you see someone reading a Bible, and you're like, oh, they're reading their Bible. Am I going to say something to them? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Have you had that moment? Because most people are not. Most people are not. Daniel knows that the king does not honor the God of Israel. 
In fact, Daniel knows that to claim that he honors a king that is the greatest king, I mean, honors a God that is the greatest God, is technically an affront to the king that he serves. That technically what he's saying is the gods of Babylon are nothing, even though they defeated Judah, the God of Judah is greater than the God of Babylon. And where does the king get his authority? From the God of Babylon. So Daniel's saying something that's potentially worthy of death. That's the test. Now, you probably will not face death if you talk about God in your workplace. But you might have other negative consequences, right? I would ask you, can you imagine any? But I think you probably already have imagined quite a few negative, potential negative consequences if you speak out about Christ where you are. So we all have here great opportunity in these three little tests to reflect what does my faith look like in action, right? Does my faith lead me to actually spend time with the Lord on a regular basis? Does my faith lead me to be obedient to the scriptures on a regular basis? Does my faith lead me to uh, forego things that are not good for my spiritual health on a regular basis? The second question was, do I apply myself? Does my faith lead me to be the best possible ex, whether that's employee, spouse, family member, neighbor, church member, whatever that I can be? And then finally, does my faith lead me to courageously speak about Christ in a potentially hostile environment? You know, a couple of stories I think about these things. Um, You know, people who just go all out, they they go all out in their faith to serve and to give and to, to do what God's called them to do. Some of you won't remember, but we used to have here in our church a man named Joel. And Joel was a person who uh, did not come from the elite class. He, he was not rich. He was not uh, in a great job. He was not, uh, when you look at him, you didn't think, oh, that's a guy. That's a guy who's a mover and a shaker who can get things done. But I tell you what, if we needed something done, we would call Joel. Joel could get anything done. Joel could get things done that you thought it should be wrong for him to be able to get done. He's not, Paul just stepped out. Paul plays saxophone, and for a long time, uh, he wanted to play saxophone, but he didn't have a saxophone. Joel found out about this and got him a saxophone. I'm like, where'd you get this saxophone? It's like, oh, I know somebody. (laughs) But how'd you get it? Oh, well, I did something for them, so they owe me a favor. Or we had technology needs. He's like, oh, I know someone who owes me a favor. (laughs) And he gets these computers. Or, you know, like just crazy things. Um, But not only that, he worked five or six days a week at a pizza shop, sub shop. On his day off during the week, he would come here and put in a six to eight hour shift working on our buildings every week for what? two and a half years maybe every single week and if he had something come up he was like oh Stephen I'm so sorry next week I'm not going to be able to come like (laughs) 
are you apologizing? You've been here every week for two years working for free for six to eight hours a day every time you come. And then every Sunday he would be back there running computers and sound system and troubleshooting and this, that, and the other. I mean, this was a guy who just could do anything, could get anything done, could acquire anything. And again, like we thought, is he stealing this stuff? Like, how is this even happening? But no, so many people loved him and owed him favors, and he knew how to cash them in for the church. It was just incredible. And even to the point that his boss, who's not a believer, the owner of that shop, he would donate to the church sometimes because he just saw Joel, how faithful he was, how consistent he was. He basically wanted to keep Joel happy because he knew that at any moment Joel could go somewhere else, right? He could get a job. He's an incredible employee. He got things done at work too. His boss was not a believer. I think he was Muslim. He was Lebanese or is Lebanese. And anyway, he just loved Joel. He just loved Joel because Joel was that kind of person. And I will, I will say, I don't think Joel woke up every morning like, I just can't wait to go work in this pizza shop. It's so much fun. I love it. It's, the, it's my dream come true. No. But he was faithful. He was consistent in that pizza shop. I was talking to Sonia yesterday about her mom. And her mom, a quiet woman, uh, not a uh, particularly... You know, she doesn't necessarily stand out in a crowd because she's so energetic or anything like that. Um, but she was the kind of woman who was observant. God gave her the gift of being able to read. Right? So there was one time she was at church and there was a woman there who looked pretty downcast. Minerva, is that right? Minerva. It was very downcast. And no one knew it. But she had gone to church that morning thinking, this is my last chance to hear from the Lord or get something from God or I'm going to end my life. Sonia's mom saw her. Something wasn't right. She didn't know her. She just walked up to her and put her arms around her and hugged her. She didn't ask permission. You probably should do that most times. (laughs) But the Lord was working on her. She went up and hugged her. And then Minerva basically received that as a word from the Lord as a gift from God as the presence of the Lord speaking to her about not taking her own life and you know what she ended up doing she ended up becoming a preacher and a minister all over Puerto Rico like in different places on the island and she would often tell the story often about how Milagros Sonia's mom came over and gave her a hug and it changed her life changed her life and a gift to the church and a gift to the world and she, she told the story at, at your mom's funeral. And she's still out there alive because someone used the gift they had, the gift to see, right? And then I was thinking, I, a few years ago, I met this man named uh, Pat Gelsinger. Does anyone recognize that name? He was the chief technology of Pentium when they were doing the, um, the of Intel, when they were doing the Pentium chips. So he's the guy who kind of orchestrated the Pentium technology. He left Pentium and became the president of EMC, which is local, before now he's the CEO of Intel. Powerful guy. 
Uh, Money, Inc., the magazine, called him one of the most generous billionaires in the world. He's a believer, and he came one day to speak to a bunch of pastors, and I happened to be there, and I got to meet him and hear his story. And he tells the story of how throughout his career, he was willing and, and called, felt called to be on display for Christ in the workplace. Now, the tech world is not known for being particularly Christian-friendly. And I just wanted to make sure I had his story right, so I looked him up on Wikipedia. And right there on his Wikipedia page, there's his career at Intel, at EMC, and in another place, and then back at Intel. And then there's a whole section on how Pat is a believer in Jesus Christ, and he has started these ministries, and he has raised funds to... To, he wants to see 100 million people come to faith in Asia. Like that's, his, that's what he's working on now. And I remember also things like he agreed with God early in his career to give more of his income away every year. Now, again, guy's a billionaire now, so we can't all do this. But to the point that he was giving away 100% of his income, he got to that point because he gave away more, a higher percentage every year. Until now, he doesn't keep any of his income. Now, again billionaire. He's got money. He's okay. But he would also speak about Christ in his workplace. He was open about being a follower of Jesus. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a hug to someone who's in need, whether it's um, someone who serves at a pizza shop, or someone who leads a probably a Fortune 100 company. It doesn't matter. Faithful is faithful. Consistent is consistent. Applying yourself is applying yourself. Using your gifts and then pointing people to God when you use them is using your gifts and pointing to people to God when you use them. You know, it doesn't have to be something grand, but it might be. God may want to use you for something bigger than you think, but I'm certain He wants to use you for things smaller than you think. So just really simply, God will use you in ways you would not expect. But there's this little caveat, and this is, the, this is the thing about faith. Faith is a gift from God. Salvation comes by faith. It's not about works, so no one can boast. But God uses you to the extent that you're willing to respond faithfully to the opportunities he provides. Let's say that again. God uses you to the extent that you're willing to respond faithfully to the opportunities he provides. And so church, I'm putting this out before you today as someone who also needs the lesson, right? I need this lesson too. Putting it out before you today that there are daily things of life, daily habits of faith, of spirituality, of spiritual health. There are... um, ways that you apply yourself to learning, to understanding, to good work in the situation you're in. And then there's proclamation and declaration in hostile environments. And God is asking us about all three of those. What does your faith look like in action in these three areas? What does it look like? Maybe you really work hard at your job but the, the daily disciplines slide. Maybe you're really good at having your quiet time on a regular basis, but you get really shy when there's an opportunity to speak about Jesus to someone who doesn't know him. 
right? And this, this is not about, and therefore you're bad and you should feel guilty, right? It's not about that. It's about what if God wants more for you and he's willing to do more through you and all you have to do is say yes. All you have to do is say yes. You know, I think so often God has ready for us. You know how salvation is a gift, right? It's a gift. You don't have to earn it. So I kind of imagine, you know, God has this big present and he walks up to every single planet, every single person on the planet, and he's like, you want this? You want this? You want this? And some people say, yeah, I want it. And some people say, no, I'm good. Right? And then the ones who want it, they reach out, and it's theirs for the having. And they have salvation. And then God goes back to all those people, and he's like, I got more, you want it? And some of us look at God when he says, I got more, do you want it? And we say, no, I'm good. No, I'm good. And God, I imagine, if he had physical features, would do something like this. You want it? And we say, no, I'm good. And he goes, oh, okay. You want it? See what I'm saying? It's there for the taking. Just have to say yes. You don't have to know what the gift is before you say yes. This is, this is a lot of us won't remember this, but um, uh, the game show with the three doors. <laughs> what was that game show? Let's make a deal. I'll take what's behind door number two. Right? Well, you don't know what's back there. You don't know what's behind the door. God's saying, do you want it? But you know what? What's behind door number two is almost always better than what you think is behind door number two when God's the one making the deal. And let's make a deal sometimes is a horrible thing that nobody wants. But with God, it's always something you want and it's usually something you don't even know that you want. You just have to say yes. So, church, I'm going to invite you to take a moment now I imagine there's either something God's been asking you that you've been saying, nah, I'm good too, and it's time to say yes. Or you're not sure what God's asking you, and so ask him. And just take a moment and say, Lord, what do you want me to say yes to? And then listen and see what comes to mind. And then in a moment, we'll uh, come together and worship, and we'll just kind of bring back to God appreciation for what he's doing and what he's going to do through... Simple things like saying yes.